0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah. Back in the Old Testament. We just want to read the first verse, and then we'll give you an introduction. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, And it came to pass in the month of Chislu in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace. Jerusalem was probably 750 miles from Shushan. Shushan would be in the northwestern part of of Iran, go all the way across Iraq into Iran, top northern part of the Persian Gulf. And so we find that he was a great distance from the place where the problem was. The problem was in Jerusalem. But let me just give you a word or two of introduction. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 606 to 586 BC had conquered Jerusalem and had deported the best of the people. And about 150 years later, Persia had uh, suspended. Babylon and superseded Babylon, I should say, as the dominant nation. So Persia was greater. And good King uh, Cyrus of Persia had decreed the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple and the return of the Jews from captivity. They'd been in captivity and Babylon in Babylonian captivity. Then we find about 50,000 of them had returned with Ezra and Zerubbabel. Ezra's before the book of Nehemiah, if you notice in your Bible. And under Ezra, they had returned. This story begins in the year of 445 B.C. in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And with her walls down, Jerusalem and every Jew had lost prestige as well as uh, security. The walls were uh, torn down. We'll read it in just a moment. And the gates were off the city walls as you went around the city of Jerusalem. And it had been lying in waste for uh, years and years and years. And they needed the pride and strength and self-respect restored. With With Jerusalem torn and down, they had no respect and they had no security. And it was just a terrible situation, which we'll read of in just a moment. And you know, sometimes when the walls of Christianity are torn down, the walls of our faith and the walls of our separation... Walls are for separation. We'll get into that in a moment. When they're torn down, then Christians uh, today need to gain respect and strength, as did they in those days. So I want to read now. We'll read on down and then come back and talk about it. So it says in verse 1, let's read it again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, And it came to pass in the month of That would be our November or December. In fact, it was kind of both. November and December. In the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, one of my my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, here's verse 3. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, And the gates thereof are burned with fire. So this was a sad report that came to Nehemiah. The wall is broken down. And when we think of what walls represent, if you turn, you don't have to turn, but I'll read it to you from Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, and I'll read verses 18 through 21. If you have time, it'd be fine if you could... But you know, there are many things that are symbolical and typical in the scripture, and these walls of Jerusalem were symbolical. Because even in verse 18 of Isaiah 60, it says, Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call, now listen carefully, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation, and thy gates praise. So their salvation and praise, in a sense, was gone because this represented their salvation and their praise, their joy in the Lord. We go on and read down through verse 21. The sun shall no more uh, be no more thy light by day, neither for the brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be in the... "...be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy morning shall be ended." Verse 21, "...thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever." So they would gain, if, if they were all righteous and they would inherit the land forever, uh, they would gain their respect, their security, their separation, and their blessing. It says, "...the branch of my planning, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified." But the main thing about that passage of Scripture... It says, Thy walls, thou shalt call thy walls salvation, that's verse 18, and thy gates praise. Now, these walls were broken down. There are three things about the walls that we want to talk about, first of all. The walls of Jerusalem was a symbol of security. And this wall, the symbol of security, remember the walls were to keep out the, the enemies that would come against Jerusalem. They were walls that would protect them from from any onslaught of the enemy from without. And when the gates were on their hinges, the gates could be all closed and locked. And there was great protection in the old days in walls of the city, and the entrances into the city uh, was difficult unless you uh, were uh, supposed to come in and invited in and a part of that. So the walls of security were broken down. Now then, this seems to teach us that every one of us should examine our spiritual defenses, our own individual spiritual defenses, and the spiritual defenses of the church. The walls of moral distinctions are broken down as far as the church is concerned. Moral distinctions. What do we consider today morally wrong? We've lost our sense of moral definitions. They're all blurred today for many people. They're blurred in the sense that, uh, gambling and drinking and immorality is so common on the television and movies and in society that we think little about where the morals really stand. There's no more black and white. It's all a kind of a, a milky gray, isn't it, that we look at. Doesn't make any difference. You know, this one did it. That one does it. Uh, it's all okay. And everybody, you know, gambling's on the increase all over our nation. You know, the, going to be the ruination of our nation, one of the of contributing factors is going to be gambling. In fact, it's almost got to that place today. But where are the morals? Christian people do it. I mean, they buy the lottery tickets by the by the truckloads. And you know, you've got a better chance of being struck by lightning. you got a better chance of going down here uh, to Alamogorda and seeing the train come through somewhere or over here in Las Cruces or somewhere and seeing the train come through and seeing a pink elephant on that train you have better luck of seeing that pink elephant than you would winning that lottery. Of course, you say, someone wins, naturally. Out of 150 or 300 million people, someone's bound to win, aren't they? But anyway, to make a long story short, gambling and drinking and uh, immorality has got to where it's, in the minds of most people, acceptable. It's just acceptable. And the walls of our morals are down. We need to read build the walls of our moral security in the churches. And I don't mean by that we cannot be compassionate and love every person that uh, that has committed a wrong. And I don't mean by that that we should not try to to win people to Jesus who are the down and outers and who are the ones that are far away from God. But we do have to make some distinctions in life. It's like, a, well, I don't know if I should say it publicly or not. Maybe I better, but this man that was here a little bit ago, he wanted money to buy a distributor cap for his automobile. I said, well, you've been drinking? Yeah, I'll have to admit I've been drinking. I don't know what Bill finally did with him out there, talking to him. And I know we should be concerned about folks like that. But you know, I said to this gentleman, I said, if you've got enough money to buy, where'd you get the money to buy that alcohol? And do you think it's right for you or I to get money out of our pocket and give to someone to not go buy something for his automobile, but to go on down here at Walmart or Furs and get some more. I don't think it's right, brother. Now then, on the other hand, if he was hungry, I'd take him and feed him in spite of the fact he's being drunk. You know, really, I'd buy him a hamburger over at McDonald's. One the size I get, a little bitty one. <laughs> because that's what i You know, that's all I can afford... If I'm going to buy a little one, he can eat a little one too, right? I'm just saying. A lot of times we get our our uh, sense of reasoning out of kilter, don't we? And I think we ought to learn to to uh, to build up the walls today and uh, the moral definitions. Instead of them being broken down as they are. Now then, the second point, we said the walls of Jerusalem was a symbol of security. And the wall of Jerusalem was a symbol of salvation. We just read that scripture. And even the knowledge of salvation in some churches is broken down. The knowledge of salvation. Because you can hear almost any kind of a doctrine priest, if you go from one church to another, and I'm talking about even in Baptist churches a mixture of salvation by works and grace when Paul in the book of Galatians says it's got to be one or the other and that Galatians were trying to mix the two together. He says, having begun in faith, are you now justified and made perfect by works, by the law in the book of Galatians? Paul says it can't be but one or the other. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And if he says it's not of works, I know that's one place not to look for it. You say, well, James says salvation is by works. James says you'll know it by your works. He doesn't say it is by works. He says you'll know it. He says you show me your faith. By your uh, without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So the way it's seen, James is showing us things that are seen, but the root is salvation by faith, and the produce is salvation. That's the product of it, is the work that we do is the proof of it. So uh, the Bible teaches a complete salvation, completely by grace, completely through faith, and you know a lot of people have misunderstood the knowledge of salvation uh, in, the, in the churches today. And it's broken down. The walls of that particular thing. The symbol of salvation. The wall of Jerusalem was a symbol of salvation. And the Bible tells us that you must be born again. And whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. A pure faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior brings about a new birth. Someone says, well, I don't understand it. Jesus said something about uh, that part of it too. He says, you must be born again. And uh, the question came up about uh, uh, being born again, Nicodemus. And uh, Jesus said, marvel not at this. It's, It's a mystery without a marvel. But it is a mystery, and the new birth is necessary for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. He says, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God without being born again. Now then, we need to realize that some churches, the separation from sin is another wall that is broken down. What do we mean separation from sin? The Bible says that the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men. Notice, you're saved by grace. We're talking about Titus, I believe it's chapter 2, verse 13. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, but that same grace That brings salvation. It says, teaching us grace not only saves, but teaches. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous and." uh, under good works. So, what is it? The grace that saves teaches us what sin is and to separate from sin. Notice that passage again. The grace of God that brings the salvation that appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying, that's the negative side of it, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, the positive, that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. It tells us what not to do and it tells us what to do. And that grace teaches us that difference. It teaches us that difference. Soberly, that's inwardly. you got to live with yourself and with God. And righteously, that's outwardly to other people. And godly, that's upwardly. That's between you and God. Three aspects. you got to live with yourself. you got to live with others. You've got to live with God. And that's the most important. And And by the way, they're all combined. You don't separate one from the other. They're all intertwined. You don't have one and not the other. If you have soberly inwardly, you're going to live uh, upwardly godly and you're going to live outwardly righteously. I mean, they're just three uh, uh, strands of the rope that are, are intertwined. All right? And a threefold cord is not easily broken, by the way. And separation from sin. And Jesus came to save us from our sins, the Bible says. And Paul says, Uh, in one place, to come out from among them, and be ye separate saith the Lord. And we're to be separated Christians. I know all this kind of teaching disturbs many today. I didn't say isolated Christians. I said separated Christians. We're in the world, but not of it, the Bible says. Jesus said in John chapter 17, they are in the world. Father, I'm not going to pray that you should take them out of the world, but that thou wouldest keep them from the evil. And the word evil there is not only evil of it, but the evil one. That's behind it, even the evil power. So we see that we need to come out. The Bible says, "The Bible says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God." What does it say? That's Second uh, Corinthians seven verse one, I believe. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. Now, when it says the spirit, the word there is our spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't need any cleansing. So, what are we up to do? We're to cleanse ourselves. There's certain things we're to put off. There's certain things we're to quit. There's certain things we're to be on guard about. You know, if this kind of a message, if we would, as Christians, beloved, take it to heart, get it right down in the depths of our hearts and start living like Christians ought to live, we would see a change automatically in our churches people would know the difference. When we start cleansing our lives and cleaning our lives up, we begin to see a revival in these local churches, in our own local church. And it's up to you and I. Uh, In the book of Ezekiel 44, verse 23, I want to read this Scripture for you. Ezekiel 44, verse 23, And they shall teach My people the difference... Listen. They shall teach My people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. I mean, make a distinction, right? Between the holy and the profane, Between the unclean and the clean. And then again in Isaiah chapter 5, I believe it is. and verse 20, it says this. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. We have people that, that call everything the opposite. Woe unto them that call evil good. And good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And it goes on to talk about many other things. While I'm there, I should go to some of those other things. Sometimes i pass over something that's very important by just giving you the verse. It says, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. I cite, Woe to them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. That means the presidents and governors and all their leaders. Which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. So we find that uh, we need to talk about what the Bible says uh, these days instead of what uh, is popular in society. Separation of good from evil is what we're talking about. Then the third thing about the wall of Jerusalem, we said the first thing about it was a symbol of security, and then it's a symbol of salvation, and the wall of Jerusalem was a symbol of strength. Now, when the walls and the gates were intact, no enemy could enter. We already mentioned that earlier in the introduction. When the walls are intact and the gates are intact, no enemy could enter. And you know, when the walls of our local church are intact, when every one of us stand as well to stand as members of a local New Testament church, when it's intact, let the enemies come. They can cry all they want to and scream all they want to and do everything they will, but God is more powerful than all of the enemies that can assail the local church if we'll stand where God wants us to stand and ask for God's blessings upon the church. I was reading his brother Wendell and Julie brought me back a little of the memoriam of, uh, of Curtis Thorpe. And in there, he was telling more or less uh, a little paragraph showing his philosophy. And he said one thing, the first thing, he says, we must have God's blessings. That's number one, isn't it? And then he says something about staying true to preaching the pure, true gospel. That's good, isn't it? And two or three more fundamental and very uh, sound Uh, statements that I appreciated. And a local church, and you and I need to pray desperately about it, every time we pray, that God's blessings, without God's blessings, Jesus said, without me you can want do nothing. And we must have the Holy Spirit's presence and His power. And the only way that all of us can have that is to have His presence in our own heart, have the right motives and attitudes about things, and then do what He wants us to do in the way of His service. And that means that we'll work together to try to build the local church into what God would have it to be. And I believe we can. I know that, you know, uh, as Sunday school teachers, you don't just work for uh, your class, you work for the other classes. Every teacher works for their own class, but they also work for the other class to build them up. That's our business. Our purpose is to get all the boys and girls from the Little ones right on up to in the Sunday school and church and have them to be taught God's Word, then we'll begin to change things in the community for the good of those that will, will be benefited by it. And I know if you, we have a new class. Oh, I was going to ask Wendell a while ago, I got carried away. New class for our young people uh, starting Sunday. Wendell and Julia take that. Sharon and Ron are go on vacation. We hope they have a wonderful vacation. They're well deserved. So many of us have had them uh, in times past, and we know that they need a, a break, too. And anyway, we want to pray for every class. We have to have substitute teachers while uh, these things are happening. And also, uh, uh, Julie will be with Wendell in that class, so we have to have uh, someone to fill her place. It's taken care of right now, but we need to pray for more teachers, more workers, and uh we need to pray that everyone will fill their place and that the children will be brought and that that the adults as well as the young ones will get on the phone and call those that we know ought to be here and get them out to the house of God. And every time you see someone that should be in the house of God, you talk to them as God leads you, by the way, to speak to that heart. Ask God to open the door and He will do that. God is good at opening doors. You know that? He's good at opening doors. So, anyway, the wall of Jerusalem was a symbol of strength. And when we have, have everything uh, as we should, the devil's not going to take charge of the church. Now then, when we consider the strength, the local church for strength, let's remember this, that we're not financially or in one way financially and another way glamorous enough to compete with Hollywood and the world and TV and society. We're not supposed to be competing with them anyway. We're supposed to do God's work and get people in. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. We want our young people, we want our people in church because it is church, because they come to worship God, not because we've got something more attractive than you've got some social doing over here. See, you might have something very attractive over there. Well, if you want to go see it, go see it. But we're not going to try to compete on that basis. We want to compete with God's Word and with the things of God. Now then, let's go on and see what happened. We talked enough about the walls. Uh, Let's notice here in verse 4. We read down to verse 3. Look at verse 4. "...and it came to pass when I heard these words..." "...that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven." Here Nehemiah was. He heard the sad condition of the people. The affliction. Notice in verse 3, "...the great affliction and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem also broken down, the gates thereof are burned with fire." He heard this awful report. And what did he do? When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You know, the God of heaven. He he doesn't say the God of the heathens, but the God of heaven. And the certain days, by the way, when you turn over to the second chapter, verse 1, it came to pass in the month uh, Nisan. This is March or April. You'll see that it was about four months that... Nehemiah continued to pray for this situation, was concerned about it. When it says in fasted and prayed, fasting is not so much the missing of meals as it is the subjection of physical desires while elevating spiritual interests. It doesn't mean you won't miss a few meals, but it does mean this, that you put your, your uh, physical desires and aside and elevate the spiritual Interest in the things of God. And I'm sure that during this four months that uh, at some point in time, Nehemiah was eating food. So we're talking about him having a real spiritual desire to do something about this situation they were in. So that Nehemiah was not too big a man for tears. He was not too big to let it be a concern. You and I need to realize that we're not too big for tears either. Paul was not a man too big for tears. Remember, the Apostle Paul says, I have continual sorrow in my heart for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In the book of Amos, it talks about those that are at ease in Zion. And he says, they're not afflicted. They're not afflicted. They're not concerned about the affliction of Joseph. They're not concerned about the affliction of Joseph. So, Nehemiah was concerned. Paul was concerned. Jesus was concerned. Jesus Behold the city, and what did it say? He wept over it. He wept over it. He said, if you had known what was in your day, but now it's departed from you. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a chicken or a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Her chickens under her wings, but you would not. It says, when he beheld the city, he wept over it. The time was past. For them to receive this compassion that Jesus wanted to bestow upon them. He said, I asked that you would come to me, and you would not come unto me, that you might have life. Remember in the Gospel of John? He says, you, whither I go, you cannot come. You know, if you will not come, you cannot. Kim was singing about going to be with the Lord when he comes. And you know, if you will not, Jesus said, you will not come unto me, that you might have what? Life. And he says, whither I go, another passage, You cannot come. So if you're going where Jesus is, you have to come to Him. He says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't exclude anyone. All ye. And so men and women, boys and girls of all ages, of all situations in life, of all circumstances, of all trials and tribulations and problems, what do they need to do? Come. Because He invites us to come. And that's what we should do. So we find that Nehemiah, was a man of prayer. In verse 5, he begins. you begin to read about his prayer. <clears throat> he said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love Him and observe His commandments. He's a covenant-keeping God. By the way, he kept his covenant in the past with Adam. He said, Adam, because you sin, you're out of the garden. You're out of the garden. That's what he promised. It wasn't so good on Adam's part. But then God provided him coats of skins instead of the old self-righteous fig leaves that he had prepared to cover his nakedness. And coats of skins were symbolical and typical of the redemptive blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus. So he's provided for our sinfulness. All of our righteousness is like, like uh, like the fig leaves. They're filthy rags we do all fade as a leaf in our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. But He has clothed us with His righteousness and provided the clothing for us in that way. But He keepeth covenant. He kept covenant with Noah. He said, Noah, you enter into this ark and I'll protect you. And after it was over, He put the rainbow in the sky and He says, this is a covenant, Noah, that I'm going to make with you and all of mankind that I will not deluge, the flood the earth uh as I have before, that I will not destroy it by water. He didn't say He wouldn't destroy it by fire because the Bible tells us He will one of these days. But He did say He wouldn't destroy it by water. There's a judgment coming yet. But anyway, He keeps His covenant. He kept His covenant with Abraham. He kept His covenant with the children of Israel. And He's made a covenant of grace with you and I and He will keep that covenant. And it's based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So in his prayer, he says, God that keepeth covenant. Look at verse 6. Let thine ear now, thine ear, now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant. The prayer of what? Thy servant. If we want God to hear our prayers, we ought to be servants of God, shouldn't we? Which I pray before thee, what? Now, day and night. It wasn't just once in a while and it was a heavy burden prayer. Day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants. He says, I'm not only your servant, but the children of Israel. They're your servants. And what? And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. What did Nehemiah say? I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we we have sinned against thee. You see, none of us can throw stones at someone else because we've all got sin. We start... Throwing rocks at some other fellow. Say, if you live in a glass house, don't throw stone. And so, uh, here, he says, I, what does he say? We have sinned against thee, both I and my Father's house. Isaiah said the same thing. When he saw the Lord, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, Then said I, Woe is me for Isaiah. Chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I and the people both. You and I ought to realize we're just sinners saved by grace. That doesn't mean we shouldn't clean our lives up, but it does mean that we don't have any right to be judgmental about the other person. We should lead them out of that and bring them to the place of asking forgiveness. And confession, notice it says confess, and confess the sins of the children of Israel. Confessing secures for every Christian forgiveness. When you confess, the Bible says if we confess our sins, what is He going to do? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does it take on our part? Confession. So uh, confession secures forgiveness and it secures fellowship. It, It secures a zeal for life. You know, we cannot just be lukewarm. Jesus said if Those that are lukewarm, He says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He says, I wish you were cold or hot. You know what they used to give people to when they needed to get something off their stomach? Lukewarm water. My mother used to give it to me when I was sick. Sometimes, didn't they put a little soda in it or something just to cause you to get rid of all the poison? I'll tell you what, Jesus wants us to be neither cold nor hot. Uh, He wished we were cold or hot, but not lukewarm. And he tells us that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. So we have a need to confess our sins. In verse 6, he says, I confess and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my Father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly. Notice that. Do we ever consider ourselves dealing corruptly? We say, well, you know, I did a little bit wrong. I wonder if we see things like God sees them. I wonder if we see sin like God sees it. Sometimes we have dealt very corruptly. He says we. Nehemiah was a good man. Nehemiah was a prayerful man. He was a cheerful man. He was a wise man. He was a courageous man. He was a persistent man. He was an unselfish man. And yet he says, We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept, not kept, look at that word not, the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. He realized they had fallen far short. Remember, I beseech thee, the word, and by the way, it's thy word, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. That's the reason they were in such a condition. They had been scattered abroad, and they had gone into Babylonian captivity. Now they had returned, and their city was burned down, and the walls were uh, down, and the gates were off their hinges, and everything in chapter 3, we're going to read where they had to restore the gates. But anyway, this condition existed because... They had transgressed, and they were scattered abroad among the nations. But look at verse nine. But if you turn unto me, this is his promise, and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet I will gather will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. God wants you to come to the place where he set his name. Look back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter uh 12, Deuteronomy chapter 12, let's read verse 2 on down, uh, verse 5 is a special verse, and then there are other verses, but anyway, let's read verse 2. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations, this is Deuteronomy 12, verse 2, which ye shall possess, serve their gods, the places of idolatry, upon the high mountains, and upon the hills, and upon the under every green tree. And ye shall overthrow their altars, and break down break their pillars, and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose. Unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose, out of all your tribes, to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek. And thither thou shalt come, and thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings, and your sacrifices, and your tithes, and your heave offerings of your hand, and your vows, and your freewill offerings, and the firstlings of your herds, and your flocks. And there, look, and there ye shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand unto, uh, ye and your households, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, ye shall not do after the things that, that we do here this day, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. You can't just say, I'll worship anywhere or any way, God, that I would want to. It'll please God. For ye are not as yet come to the rest of the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when ye go, go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about, so that ye dwell in safety, then there shall... There shall be a place, there shall be what? A place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there, thither Shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maid servants and the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he hath no partner inherits with you. Take heed to thyself. Now look. Take heed to thyself that thou Offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. We read, But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of the tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. Now what? Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. You know, a lot of people, and they take the Scripture out of its context, Jesus, was, when He said where two or three are gathered together in My name, there I am in the midst of them, He was talking about in the midst of His people as they were assembled to worship Him. But a lot of people have strained that so much, they say, well, I can worship God out here under the tree. Well, you can. But He wants us to assemble together too, doesn't He? And. You can worship God. You should worship God on your way home in the automobile. But it doesn't mean that you should neglect assembling together. And when you, it says, take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of the tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. So what's he saying? He's saying that you should come. To the place where he's put his name there. And that's what they're talking about. Look back in Nehemiah chapter 1. Yet I will gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Where did he set his name in those days? In Jerusalem, the holy city. Now, verse 10 and 11. Now these are thy servants and thy people. In verse 8 he speaks of his word, thy word. In verse 9, thy promise. In verse 10, thy redemption. These are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed. God's people are to be his servants. Notice, thy servants and thy people. See that? Thy people are to be thy servants by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Verse eleven. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants. Look at that. Who was praying? Nehemiah was praying, but he says everybody ought to be doing it, right? Look at that very carefully. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to, to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. We need the servants that desire to, to fear God's name. We need those that are, uh, have a loving loyalty to God and to the house of God and to the ministry of God's Word. We need loyal Christians. Strong churches have loyal members. They have officers and members and pastors that agree on sound policies, on biblical policies in the church, on scriptural policies, and in this local church, on New Testament Baptist policies. And that's what we should stand for. And, beloved, we're going to find a day and hour, and we're already in it, in the midst of it, where people say it doesn't make any difference. doesn't make any difference. It does make a difference. And I would tonight that we could indoctrinate Every Christian here, every child of God, in such a way, in God's Word, that they'll say, I'm going to attend the house of God, the place of God, the New Testament church. Jesus said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'm going to believe what the Bible teaches about a local church. And I'm going to be a member of it. And I'm going to be a teacher and a worker in it. And brother, when we get that kind of dedication,